Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the sixth installment of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Article 1, Section 4. Every person shall be at liberty to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. No person shall be compelled to attend or, against his consent, to contribute to the erection or support of any place of religious worship, or to pay tithes, taxes, or other rates for the support of any ministry of the gospel or teacher of religion. No monies shall be appropriated or drawn from the treasury for the benefit of any religious sect or society, theological or religious seminary, nor shall property belong to the state be appropriated for such purpose. The civil and political rights, privileges, and capacities of no person shall be diminished or enlarged on account of his religious belief. Article 1, Section 4 is effectively the equivalent to the United States Constitution's First Amendment freedom of religion provisions. The Free Exercise Clause pertains to the right to freely exercise one's religion. It states that the government shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. That being said, the courts do place some limits on the exercise of religion. For example, courts would not hold that the First Amendment protects human sacrifice even if some religion required it. The Supreme Court has interpreted this clause so that the freedom to believe is absolute, but the ability to act on those beliefs is not. Questions of free exercise usually arise when a citizen's civic obligation to comply with a law conflicts with that citizen's religious beliefs or practices. If a law specifically singled out a specific religion or particular religious practice, under many court rulings, it would violate the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 4 provision. 
ambiguity occurs when a law is generally applicable and religiously neutral, but nonetheless has the unintentional outcome of interfering with a particular religious practice or belief. Let's discuss general case law. The first case we're going to spend some time reviewing is the 1986 Michigan Supreme Court case of Sheridan Road Baptist Church versus the Michigan Department of Education. This case gave a good overview of what an establishment and free exercise case law looks like under Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution. So here's what's going on. This case involves primarily a free exercise of religion challenge based on Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution to the state statute requiring teachers in non-public schools to be certified by the state of Michigan. The Michigan Department of Education requested information about student enrollment and teacher qualifications from two different church schools. In this instance, a church school is where a church owns and operates a school on the same property, although not necessarily within the same building. When the schools refused to comply with the request, the state scheduled a hearing to determine if the schools were in violation of a state statute which required those schools to hand over such information. The schools believed that the requirements of the statute was in violation of Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution. So, what were they alleging was unconstitutional? First up, that the free exercise provision of the Michigan Constitution protects against the state requirement for teachers in those church schools to be certified by the state of Michigan. The legislature, by statute, required all teachers to be certified by the state. The state's argument was that they had a compelling interest in assuring teachers teaching children were knowledgeable and competent. To do so, prospective teachers had to complete 40 semester hours of general education, teach in the field, have a formal degree, and other such regulations. It was the opinion of the schools that restricting the freedom of churches to employ only government-certified teachers in its school ministry is a violation of their spiritual beliefs. The schools believe that the certification rules intrude upon or threaten the operation of the church schools in their selection of their teachers. It's the belief of the school that this requirement forces upon them subjective control by the state regarding important aspects about the qualifications of a teacher in areas of deep philosophical and religious differences between a church school and the prevailing non-religious philosophies concerning education matters. Here, we had a split court whereby Chief Justice Williams wrote the opinion of the Supreme Court, but nobody signed on to it. Instead, Justices Boyle and Brickley wrote their own opinion concurring with the result, but had a different take on how to review cases implicating the free exercise of religion. Finally, Justice Riley wrote a dissent in which Justices Levin and Kavanaugh joined in, and they would have reviewed the case in a different manner, all of which we will discuss. One side note, Justice Dennis Archer was not part of this case decision, which is relevant only insofar as, without his vote, the court was subsequently split three to three. All right, let's talk about Chief Justice Williams' opinion. The Chief Justice used two United States Supreme Court case outcomes to craft a four-part analysis 
to be used when determining if a church school's religious practice is being infringed upon by the government. They are as follows. 1. The plaintiff who is claiming a religious infringement against the exercise of their religious beliefs must be rooted in religious beliefs. If the regulation poses no infringement by the state of Michigan of the plaintiff's constitutional right to free exercise, then the regulation will be upheld. If that's the case, if the regulation is deemed to pose no infringement by the state, stop right there. Case closed. Plaintiff loses. There is no need to proceed with any analysis. However, if there is an infringement to the plaintiff's free exercise of their religion, we need to move to the next step. Number three. Is the regulatory subject within the state's constitutional power to regulate, and assuming it is, is the burden created incidental to the free exercise of the religion? Lastly, there has to be no less intrusive form of regulation available to the state. If there is a less obtrusive way to regulate the subject, the standard will be deemed unconstitutional. Okay, so let's go through these elements one by one. The religious nature of the claim. The Chief Justice found there was no dispute as to the religious belief regarding the school's objections to the certification requirement. He agreed the church is not only a place of worship, but a place for instruction for its youth. It's logical to believe the school is an extension of the church. It's understandable plaintiffs would object to state regulations of their schools, which they consider a mission ordained by God, to require a humanistic rather than a religious approach to education. So this first element goes in favor of the plaintiff schools. Second, a burden on free exercise rights. The school's argument here is that no entity could ever carry out a teaching ministry in a church school without a government permit to do so. The Chief Justice agreed that such licensing has an effect on the school's free exercise rights, so he now wants to determine whether this burden is outweighed by a compelling state interest. So this second element goes in favor of the plaintiff schools. Number three, compelling state interest in education. As far back as 1925, the United States Supreme Court has ruled that a state has compelling interest in the education of its citizens. It was reiterated in Brown v. Topeka Board of Education regarding desegregation in 1954. But we as a state have always had a significant and deeply rooted interest in education, which goes back to a provision of the 1787 Northwest Ordinance. For that reason, the Chief Justice said the state's interest in education necessarily extends to an interest in teachers because a primary and vital ingredient to a good education— are good teachers. To the extent that certification of teachers benefits education, it can be considered a compelling state interest. Those certification requirements are clearly aimed at and closely related to the goal of producing competent teachers. Therefore, this element goes in favor of the state and their certification requirement. Fourth, state's interest outweighs the minimal infringement. The chief cited with the state because the regulations do not require anyone to attend courses taught from any perspective contrary to their beliefs. The teachers can fulfill all the state certification requirements while attending either a religious or non-religious institution. Therefore, 
the infringement on the free exercise rights is minimal and outweighed by the state's interest. This alone would probably be enough for the state to win the case, but there's one more element in favor that we need to discuss. Last one, no less intrusive method is available to the state. The Chief Justice was satisfied that there was no intrusive method by which the state could satisfy its interests in assuring quality teachers are properly teaching Michigan students. For those reasons, the school lost their free exercise claim. The other issue which was brought to the Michigan Supreme Court was a violation of the Establishment Clause. The Chief Justice first pointed out, Article 1, Section 4 addresses the Establishment Clause and its test should mirror that to the United States Supreme Court Lemon v. Kurtzman analysis, also an Establishment Clause case. To do so, the statute must meet a three-part test. Number one, the statute must have a secular, also referred to as a non-religious, legislative purpose. The primary effect of the statute must be one that neither advances nor inhibits religion. And finally, the statute must not foster an excessive government entanglement with religion. As a side note, this excessive government entanglement with religion provision is going to be a reoccurring theme throughout this and the next couple podcasts. Neither the state, the schools, nor the chief justice took exception to parts one and two. They all agreed the certification requirement was a non-religious goal and that it was not looking to advance or inhibit religion. But where there was a disagreement was whether requiring the church schools to have state-certified teachers fostered excessive government entanglement with religion. The Chief Justice did not see this requirement as creating an intimate and continuing relationship between church and state. To the contrary, he believed the state was merely enforcing minimum standards for all teachers and there was no continuing relationship created between the government and the schools or its teachers. He found that once the teacher was certified, the state does not require the individual to teach from any particular perspective or school philosophy. For that reason, the schools lost their establishment claim. For the Chief Justice, the degree to which government would have to monitor schools or how frequently schools had to report back to the government was his way of weighing excessive government entanglement. Now let's talk about Justices Boyle and Brickley's concurring opinion. These two justices agreed the statute requiring teachers in church schools to be certified was neither a free exercise nor establishment infringement matter. As a matter of fact, they agreed with Chief Justice Williams' analysis regarding why the Establishment Clause was not infringed upon by the statute, but it was the free exercise analysis they viewed in a different light. They even acknowledge when a regulation conflicts directly with a religious practice, accommodation between the religious action and the exercise of state authority is a particularly delicate task. This is because a resolution in favor of the state results in the choice to the individual of either abandoning his religious principle or face potential criminal prosecution. Now, when the burden on the exercise of religion is indirect, so for example, the legislation does not make the religious practice itself unlawful, then it's appropriate to give deference to the requirement, otherwise the authority of the legislature would be severely restricted. 
So here's how Justices Boyle and Brickley would analyze a free exercise infringement claim via this seven-point test. Number one, what is the government's interest? The justices believe the higher the level of abstract generality the government has in making the regulation, the better the government will fare. Obviously, then, the more concrete or fact-specific the interest is, the worse the government will do. Number two, the way the government chooses to achieve its interest. What was the rationale for picking this particular regulatory action and its desired outcome? That's what would need to be reviewed. Number three, is there a logical nexus between what the government is looking to achieve and the way it's going about doing it? The court will look at things like necessity, essentiality, broadness versus narrowness, and objective versus subjectiveness, as it relates to the regulation. The court will evaluate whether the regulation is one of several different ways to accomplish the objective or if this regulation is the only way to do so. Ultimately, the stronger and more direct the logical nexus, the better the government will fare when balancing these factors. Number four, what is the private right that is being affected? Whether the right is explicit in the Constitution, whether a court is asked to recognize such a right as a matter of first impression, or whether the right is claimed to exist by extension of some other explicit rights, that's going to be necessary. The more direct and more on point a quote-unquote right is, the worse off the government is going to do. Number five. What is the nature of the conflict between the private right and the means chosen by the government to achieve its objective? The court should examine whether the infringement is direct or indirect. Does it have an impact on belief or conduct? Also, are there other least restrictive alternatives available? Number six, the extent of the conflict. The judges suggested that courts should look at the amount of burden to a religious tenant versus the extent of diminished authority of the state if the religious tenant is allowed. Minimal diminished authority to the state bears positive to the religious plaintiff. Finally, the role of the individual exemption. Whether an individual exemption is required to be offered depends upon the analysis of the aforementioned six factors. So let's take a look at these six factors and let's work through them to see how the two justices found in favor of the state. Well, first up, state interest. They said that was paramount to the state. And the means selected to achieve that end, they said it was drawn as narrowly as possible. The nexus? Well, they believe ensuring teachers are academically qualified is a neutral regulation regarding religion and is based on an objective standard which is not motivated by hostility for or against any religious faith. Private right. There's clearly extremely important private rights that are being related to this religious plaintiff. How about nature and extent of conflict? The two justices understood that the plaintiff's issue isn't with the certification per se, but the government's requirement to have certified teachers. That is the infringement the school finds faulty. But the justices don't see it as an unfair infringement. They point out that the certification itself doesn't compel the schools nor prevent the schools from otherwise teaching and engaging the students in the religious tenets of their faith. More so, these teachers are not in any way restricted 
nor forced to become qualified for a state teaching certificate in ways adverse to their religious beliefs. So, said another way, these teachers are able to get their education from a religious school, become certified by the state, and then join the school all without the school having to authorize a quote-unquote humanist philosophy with which the schools are concerned. Lastly, the justices did not see an alternative which provided less infringement, meaning they were of the opinion alternative options would likely infringe more upon the schools and their religious autonomy than merely a blanket requirement that all teachers in Michigan be certified. Again, to sum up these two justices, they believe, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the plaintiffs do not find the need to hire certified teachers object objectionable. It's the governmental requirement to do so with which they have the problem. But this is not an infringement against the church school that the justices believe severe enough to violate Article 1, Section 4. Now let's discuss the dissent. There were three justices who dissented from the chief justice's opinion in this case. These dissenting justices were of the opinion this case did not support the conclusion enforcing the teacher certification provisions of the statute was constitutional. Instead, they believed the state failed to establish any substantial relationship between the enforcement of the regulation and the governmental interest in compulsory education. The dissenting justices felt it was upon the state to establish that enforcing the certification requirement is essential to the fulfillment of the compelling governmental interest. Does having a teaching certification requirement comply with the objective of the compulsory education law? They answered that question by saying it was incumbent upon the state to show that exempting plaintiffs from the certification requirement would unduly impair the state's interest in compulsory education and that enforcing the certification requirement is the least intrusive means by which to accomplish its objective. To start... The dissenting justices argued if the record in the case supported the plaintiff's claims that their refusal to comply with the teacher certification statute is based upon a sincerely held religious belief, and if that certification requirement interfered with the free exercise of those beliefs, then the issue requires an inquiry into the necessity of enforcing the certification statute to further the state's interests. The dissenting justices took a more favorable approach to the church schools by saying that if accommodating the plaintiff's religious practices would cause no ascertainable harm to the state's asserted interests, then no balancing test is even required. And the justices went on to say if there's no ascertainable harm to the state's interests, you can't claim the infringement to the plaintiff's First Amendment right is minimal. Here, the justices believed granting an exception from complying with the state regulation was appropriate if there was a factual basis able to be shown by the school that they held a sincerely held religious belief. Albeit, this is something best left to a trial court to determine, there was, at least these justices believed, ample evidence from the trial court to prove the school's beliefs were sincerely held. But the dissent went on to say the teacher certification requirement forced the school to either compromise their religious beliefs so as to conform to the state's interests, 
or otherwise forbid the church from running at school, thus forcing children to attend a school which may go against the wishes and religious beliefs of the parents. Ultimately, the dissenting justices said, there was nothing they could find that indicated giving an exemption to the church schools would have any adverse effect on the state's goal as it relates to the responsibility of enforcing compulsory school attendance or ensuring that the children of these church schools were getting the education necessary to send them off into society. Said another way, the state needs to show how granting the exemption to the church school would unduly impair its interests and how this action is the least intrusive way to accomplish that goal. Next, let's talk about Kerry Champion in his case against the Michigan Secretary of State's office. He alleged the Secretary of State's office violated his Article 1, Section 4, Freedom of Worship and Religious Beliefs when they refused to allow him to renew his driver's license without submitting his Social Security number. Mr. Champion, quite the name for a lawsuit, wouldn't you say? He argues that his liberty to worship according to his own conscience would be compromised if effectively forced to engage in an activity inconsistent with his religious beliefs and that his driving privileges were diminished on account of these beliefs. Relying on our previous Michigan Supreme Court case, the Michigan Court of Appeals analyzed this case under the five-part compelling state interest test which we've already discussed. As such, I'll just address the elements as I address the fact pattern. Neither the Secretary of State nor the Michigan Court of Appeals denied that plaintiffs' beliefs were genuine, nor was it disputed the actions taken by Mr. Champion were done based upon his genuine religious beliefs. But maybe said another way, it's not like Mr. Champion used religion as a fake excuse to avoid giving the Secretary of State his Social Security number. This was a true religious belief he held. If you're wondering, by the way, where his uh, religious objection came from, apparently it's found in the book of Revelations contained in the New Testament. The third element of burden on one's religious freedom actually gets punted by the Court of Appeals, and they somewhat come right out and state that. Mr. Champion states that the requirement of giving a Social Security number to the Secretary of State's office makes him choose between staying faithful to his beliefs and thus foregoing a driver's license, or abandoning his religious convictions in order to get a driver's license. The Court of Appeal says that because they find in favor of the Secretary of State's office under the next two elements, they were going to decline evaluating whether the exercise of Mr. Champion's religious beliefs was actually burdened. So, we have to go to the last two elements to find out why the state's requirement of a social security number was not an infringement of Mr. Champion's religious freedoms. To do so, the Court of Appeals said they needed to look at the purpose of the requirement, and that is due to child support. See, the state of Michigan merely put into state statute a requirement which was coming from the federal government. The federal government didn't want deadbeat parents from skipping out on child support that they may owe. So, if deadbeat dad decides he's going to leave the state of Michigan and move to, say, Montana to get out from paying what he owes to baby mama, the minute he tries to get a driver's license at the Montana Secretary of State office, it's going to flag him and will let Michigan know where he is. The theory being preserving and promoting the welfare of children relative to their financial health and well-being 
is an important state objective. The government should know where these individuals are for the purpose of holding them accountable to pay their child support. The Michigan Court of Appeals said, in our case at hand, the government does have a compelling interest in tracking and locating parents who are legally obligated to pay child support and to ensure the support obligations and payments are being performed, you know, as entered by a court of law. The court agreed the use of a social security number is an important and useful tool as it is a unique federal identifier effectively used to locate absent parents. So the court found the fourth element, that being the state having a compelling state interest to justify the burden imposed against a religious belief, has been met by the state. Finally, the court reviewed whether there was a less obtrusive way to achieve the goal, but they concluded there was not. To claim a religious exemption to the requirement would ultimately defeat the goal and intention of the statutory requirement. The reason I chose to highlight this case was twofold. First, it was a case which used the compelling state interest five-part test. This gives us a better understanding regarding where Michigan courts fall in regard to how best to judge whether a state statute or regulation infringes on someone's freedom of religion stance. But also, because this case is one of the most recent cases taken up, the issue of how to determine if the government is violating a person's Article 1, Section 4 freedom of religion claim, it was because it was decided in 2008 and has been relied upon by lower courts since then. Our last case for this particular podcast, Fisher versus Fisher, we're going to discuss because it originated from a divorce and it addresses a few topics I think are relevant to Article 1, Section 4 and will be interesting to the listener. The person at the heart of this case is a guy by the name of Ronald Fisher. A default judgment was entered by the court when his wife, Peggy Fisher, filed for divorce against her husband, Ronald. They had three kids from the marriage, which he was granted reasonable visitation rights and ordered to pay the appropriate amount of child support based on income. Somehow, some way not relevant to this review, Mr. Fisher appeals the divorce matter all the way up to the Michigan Court of Appeals, where he alleges his Article 1, Section 4 constitutionally protected rights have been violated by the state of Michigan. He requested the Court of Appeals grant him the following four matters of legal relief. Number one, declare that the state is powerless to dissolve the party's ecclesiastical union. Two, order joint custody of the children. Three, order that the children be provided a Christian education and religious training. And four, terminate his legal obligation to pay child support. The Michigan Court of Appeals addressed each manner as follows. The court began by stating that Mr. Fisher mischaracterizes the nature of the state's action when it declared a dissolution of his marriage. Said another way, Mr. Fisher doesn't think the state of Michigan can divorce him from his spouse because his marriage is an act of commitment from God. But the Court of Appeals aptly points out a court's power only extends to the dissolution of the party's civil contract of marriage. And remember, ultimately, marriage is nothing more than a contract between two people in the eyes of the government. The courts can legally end a contract. Additionally, the court noted that the status of the Fisher's ecclesiastical union has in no way been affected by the dissolution of their civil union. 
Next, the court rolled Mr. Fisher's request for joint custody and a Christian education requirement into one overarching analysis. Mr. Fisher's argument is that the state doesn't have the right to determine one parent should have sole custody of the kids, that instead, God owns all children and gives them to parents at conception. Therefore, Mr. Fisher contends, for the state to alter this natural relationship by awarding sole custody to one parent, it constitutes an impermissible burden on his constitutional right to exercise his religious convictions. Similarly, he also argues his religious liberty has been violated when the court refuses to order his ex-wife to continue the children's Christian education. His religious tenets dictate that daily Bible-based instruction is integral to his religious exercise. The court here said a constitutional balancing test is needed to determine if there is a compelling state interest to which Mr. Fisher's exercise of religious convictions were infringed upon. But when doing so, the court stated there is an extremely compelling interest in the state protecting the welfare of minor children, particularly in light of a dissolution of a parent's marriage that the care and protection of children must be a matter of the utmost concern for the state. The court went on to say that the controlling consideration in such disputes will be the best interests of the children. Those best interests, the court say, include inherent rights to proper and necessary support, custody, and general well-being of the children. The court believes that the best interest factors are a non-religious set of factors which are applied evenly across the religious and to non-religious person alike. And for those that are religious, it applies regardless if you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or Hindu. Now, the Court of Appeals did say that once the decision of custody was made, the court cannot interfere with the religious practices of either the custodial or non-custodial parent unless those practices threaten the children's well-being. But the Court of Appeals was very clear in saying a court cannot make a custodial parent educate their children in a particular faith, much the same way a court cannot interfere with the non-custodial parent involving the children in religious activities during those legal visitation periods. Finally, with regard to the order of child support, the Court of Appeals pointed out that Mr. Fisher conceded his religious convictions didn't prohibit him from paying child support. He even went so far as to say he had a moral obligation to provide for his children's needs. For those reasons, the court found there was a vital interest in the court ensuring the proper welfare for Mr. Fisher's children. That's going to do it for episode six of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Please reach out to me by email at podcast at tonysnyder.com or I'm on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.